Well, the fall is upon us. Like it or not, the temperatures are dropping, and it is starting to feel like fall in greater Boston. Now, I know that many of you love the fall for different reasons, right? Some of you love just the beauty, and this is a wonderful place in America to live when it comes to the fall. The, the beautiful leaves on the trees will be filled with color. Uh, for, for others of you, maybe you love fall because uh, maybe especially you ladies, you love just to go out and shop for, you know, the latest fall fashions and buy warmer clothes and that type of thing. Um, perhaps others of you, maybe families, are looking forward to going out apple picking on the outskirts of the city. And still others of you sports fanatics, you love the fact that the playoffs for the Red Sox, prophetically speaking, are right around the corner. And football season is here. In fact, some of our guys at Redemption Hill are playing fantasy football together. Today there is a crucial matchup between uh, your bus driver, that would be Josh Miller's team, uh, because he takes all of us to school. That's why his team is the bus driver. Um, and the Medford Marauders, that's my team right there. So we have a key matchup. And I've decided, the Lord gave me this this morning, I've decided that if I beat Josh today, my team is going to be the principal's office. So, only if I win, Josh. <laughs> but the fall means so many different things for all of us. In our family, fall really means that basketball season is right around the corner. And many of you know that I'm the freshman basketball coach at Medford High School. And can you just imagine with me for a moment if, you know, practice begins late November here. And so can you imagine at the beginning of November, I get a call from our athletic director, Bobby Maloney, and our head coach, Anthony Faraday. And they say, hey, Tanner, we need you to come into our office. We have some things we need to talk to you about. And so I roll in, and I'm thinking, you know, hey, maybe it's time for a raise. I did such a great job last year, you know, even though we had a losing record. Um, you know, maybe, maybe they were looking to promote me and maybe move me up the chain. And so uh, when I sit down in the office, they pull out a copy of the Medford transcript. And they point to an editorial written by last year's players' parents. And this editorial is filled with accusations against Coach T. Coach Turley really doesn't care about the players. Coach Turley doesn't really bring his whistle to practice. In fact, he likes to sit on the sidelines like a chaperone and eat cannolis and drink coffee while the kids are running sprints. Coach Turley has really taken this job so that he can connive his way to Coach Faraday's position as the head coach at Medford High. And with these accusations, they say, Tanner, look, we're not sure if all these things are true. I mean, we have seen you stop by Modern Pastry before practice several times, so maybe that's legit. But, you know, we, we kind of hate to do this, but we are going to have to demote you. You're no longer the freshman coach this year. Your salary has been suspended. You have the privilege of being the manager this season. Okay, a.k.a. the water boy. And that at least gets you into the games free, but you have no responsibility as far as the team goes, and you have been demoted. Hopefully that's not going to happen this fall for Coach Turley. But this is exactly what happened to Jesus in the city of Colossae. You see, there were these false teachers among the Colossians that were giving Jesus a demotion. 
They were saying things like, Jesus is not fully God. They were taking shots at his character and his work. They were saying his work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, is, is, is not legit. In fact, it's not sufficient for your salvation. And so Paul has an answer for these claims in the book of Colossians. And what we're going to find in verses 15 through 23 is that Paul is going to answer these charges by elevating Jesus to his rightful place. He's going to speak all kinds of of awesome and glorious truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ here in our passage this morning. And so what we're going to find is that Paul paints this picture of Jesus Christ as completely glorious. And I think if Paul were with us this morning, he would say, look, you know, I don't want you just to simply have this glorious picture of Christ when you walk out of this room, but this glorious picture of Christ should do something to your life. It should cause you to worship and praise Him. And so that's the encouragement this morning. As we go through this this text, the encouragement is that we should praise Jesus for His supremacy in creation and redemption. Let's read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. If you're using the Bibles that we provided for you, this is on page 983. Uh, You can move there as I begin to read these verses for us. Paul writes, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so let me give us a few encouragements in light of this beautiful picture that Paul paints of Jesus here in Colossians chapter 1. Number one, the first encouragement is this, that we should worship Jesus for his supremacy in creation. Worship Jesus for his supremacy in creation. And what we find in the very opening line of verse 15 is that Jesus is the revealer. Did you notice that the text says that he is the image of the invisible God? You know, I had a, a meeting, I had lunch with a friend, a new friend this week, and uh, he, he doesn't even believe in the existence of God. It's quite sad to me, but there are many in our communities that doubt even the existence of God. And one of the things that he said, he said, look, if God exists, it seems like he would reveal himself to us. His notion was that God is like playing a cosmic game of hide and seek with his creation. And I tried to to humbly and lovely explain that that God has revealed himself generally in in a variety of ways, one through creation. Psalm 19 says that the heavens are telling of the glory of God and the, the, the expanse tells the work of his hands. God has also revealed himself in our conscience. So we have this moral conscience, this judge that gives us a sense of morality, of, of right and wrong. And beyond that, you say, well, well, creation and conscience, that doesn't tell us exactly who God is or how we can relate to him. You're right. 
And so God has revealed himself to us specially, we call special revelation, through his written word. He has spoken, he has revealed his word through, through his, his prophets and apostles that we might know him. But then he has also revealed himself, not only through the written word, he has revealed himself to us by his living word, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. This is Jesus, John chapter 1. And so Paul says, look, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He reveals God to us. John would put it this way in John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has made the Father known. And in John 14, a conversation with one of his disciples, Philip. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And what does Jesus say? He says, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. When we see Jesus in the gospel extending love and mercy and forgiveness, we know that God is a God of love, mercy, and forgiveness. When we see Jesus in the gospel healing people and providing for people, we know that God is our healer and our provider. When we see Jesus in the Gospels turning over tables in the temple because people had brought in this false worship, we know that God is holy and he has righteous, just indignation against our sin. We can look at Jesus and know God. And so here's a a point of application for us. Even in light of looking at Paul's prayer for the Colossians last week where he prays that they would increase in the knowledge of God, if you want to increase in your knowledge of God, get to know Jesus. Read the Gospels. Watch how he operates. Memorize every word that he said. Get to know Jesus and you will understand who God is. But we also see at the end of verse 15 and end of verse 16 that Jesus is is not only the revealer, but Jesus reigns over all creation. And there is some loaded content in these couple of verses. You see, at the end of verse 15, he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And this is a, a notoriously difficult verse taken by itself. Because just on a surface level reading, we would maybe conclude with the Arians of the early 4th century and the Jehovah's Witnesses of today that Jesus is not fully divine because he was created. He was the first creation, but he was indeed created. Now, there are two responses to this notion. Number one, we need to understand what the word firstborn means. It has multiple usages in the Bible. It could mean firstborn in the sense of chronologically speaking, have carry connotations of chronology. In other words, I might say that Parker is my firstborn daughter, and she is. In time, she came before Kesed. God blessed us with Parker before Kesed. She is our firstborn. But also in the Bible, we see this word firstborn referring to a position or a rank. And we see this numerous times, but particularly helpful is Psalm 89, verse 27, which points to the Messiah, and it says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. But if that's not convincing enough for you, 
then just read. Like when we have questions about Scripture, here's an encouragement. Just keep reading. Because what is the very opening line of verse 16 says? It says, For by him all things were created. If Jesus created all things, it would be an impossibility for him to be a created being, right? So Jesus created all things. And, and so you say, well, well, how did Jehovah's Witness handle this, this verse? They don't actually twist this one, they change this one. If you look at the New World Translation, they have in there that, that for by him all other things were created. They slipped that word other in there rather conveniently. But we have no permission to change God's words. And so Paul makes this explicit. He goes on with three qualifiers and says, look, I'm talking about all things, things in heaven and on earth. That's a merism for everything in between. Jesus created it all. Visible and invisible. What you can see and what you can't see, Jesus made it all. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him. All the spiritual forces in the world, they were all created by Jesus. And so Jesus made everything. He is the architect of creation for by him. He is the builder through him and he is the goal of creation. All things were created for Jesus. And so I want you to think about this as you kind of work your way through your week this week. Every blade of grass, every grain of sand, Every leaf on a tree, every creature that moves, your dog, your cat, the ants in your child's ant farm, they were all made for Jesus, and so were you. Some people are wondering, man, why on earth am I, am I here? Why am, why am I living this life? What's it all about? And the Bible clearly tells us that we were made for God. We don't exist to chase paper, to have the nicest car, the nicest pad, the newest designer clothes. This is not why we were created. We don't exist so that we can have the best spouse or the best job or the best friends in the world. We exist that we might know and live and love Jesus. And so this is why we would put on our T-ad that we have launched around the city, particularly on the Orange Line, the bus systems around here, a statement by St. Augustine that says this, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And so let me ask you this morning, do you realize that you were made for God? And that apart from God, apart from chasing any other passion or pursuit in this life that would supplant the rightful place of Jesus on the throne of our lives, whatever that thing is, it's not going to ultimately satisfy you. Never. It does not have the potential or the capacity to satisfy you because you were not made for that thing or that pursuit. You were made for Jesus. And so if you want to fulfill your created purpose, live for Jesus. Your relationships are for Jesus. Your work is for Jesus. Everything in life is for Jesus. And then in verse 17, we see this, that not only is Jesus the creator, but he is also the sustainer of 
his creation. Look, look back in verse 17. What does Paul say? He says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So think about this. From the greatest galaxy to the smallest atom, Jesus holds it all together. Physicists would tell us, this isn't from me, this is from a physicist friend, who says this, or I'll wrap your mind around this, the, the strong and weak nuclear forces that hold nuclei together, all right, is everyone remembering back to elementary school and junior high and high school? Um, the strong and weak nuclear forces that hold nuclei together are tuned just right. Any stronger or weaker, and we wouldn't exist. Jesus holds all things together. You say, I'm not a physicist, I can't explain that, I can't tell you how all that works, but as a theologian, I can safely conclude that however that all works, Jesus is behind it, holding all things together. But let's move from science to maybe a little more personally in our lives. Let's move from science to suffering. Jesus says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. We know that this world is not as good as it gets. We all experience suffering in this world. We see it on a weekly basis. We have friends who are sick. We have family members who suffer and even sometimes often die from cancer. We see people lose jobs and thousands, millions of people going hungry in our world. You say, how do we how do we get through this? How do we make it through this? Well, Jesus can hold us together, even in the midst of our greatest suffering. And so if you want to handle suffering in your life, here's an encouragement. Rest in Jesus. Know that Jesus has everything in the palm of his hand. And even in the greatest moments of suffering and evil, Jesus is still in control, sustaining all things. You say, convince me more. We'll just look at the cross. There was never a greater moment of, inju of injustice in all of human history, and there was never a greater moment of love and redemption than in the cross of Christ. God was working through human evil to bring about the greatest good. So Jesus sustains us in our suffering we see in verses 15 through 17 that we should worship Jesus for his supremacy in creation. But then number two, here's a second encouragement for us this morning. We should worship Jesus for his supremacy in redemption. Let's read verses 18 through 20 again where Paul writes, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so what else do we learn about Jesus from verses 18 through 20? Well, number one, Jesus is the head of his church. As the head of his church, Jesus is the leader of his church. Not the pope, not pastors, not deacons, not the first impressions team or the music and media team or the children's workers downstairs. Jesus leads his church. He guides his church. He gives direction to his church. But also as the head, 
he also sustains and gives sustenance to his people that they might live for him. And so our church will thrive as long as we stay connected to Jesus and submit to Jesus. You say, well, what does this look like at Redemption Hill? Well, Jesus is the leader of this church. He's the, as Peter calls him in his little letter, the chief shepherd. And so the pastors of Redemption Hill will always and forever be just under shepherds that are trying to follow the way and will of Jesus. To get very practical, if at any moment we as pastors teach you something that Jesus did not teach, or ask you to do something that Jesus did not ask you to do, then don't listen to or follow us. Listen to and follow Jesus. He is the head of the church. And so if you want this church to thrive, submit to Jesus. He is the leader and head of his church. He keeps us moving forward. And then at the, verse, at the end of verse 18, we then see that Jesus is supreme over all things. He, he teaches us in a couple of ways. First off, he says that, that, that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. You say, what on earth does this mean? This is, this is I think, maybe carries both connotations that we talked about earlier, that not only in time, but also in rank and position. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. In other words, Jesus was the first to be resurrected, to never die again. And his resurrection guarantees the resurrection of us all. But then also, you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the, the resurrection of Jesus is what gives him the, 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 the prominent place to be preeminent in all things. Paul says that he might be preeminent, or as the NIV says, this is where we get our whole title for this whole series through Colossians, that he might have the supremacy in all things. And so Jesus is to reign supreme over all. I mean, we think about there are a lot of great rivalries in this world, right? You have Apple versus Mac, or PC, wait, that doesn't work. Apple versus Microsoft or PC, right? Okay, yeah, that was nonsensical. Um, you have the Yankees versus the Sox, right? You have peanut butter versus... J no, not really. Okay, we have all these great rivalries in the world, right? Jesus has no rivals. Jesus has no competitors. He reigns supreme and wins every single time. He reigns over all his creation. And so what does that mean for us? Well, if you want your life to be well-ordered, recognize Jesus as supreme. You say, Tanner, what does this look like? Well, let me just ask you a series of questions. Is Jesus supreme in your life down to the details? Do you often through the course of your day, think about Jesus. Does Jesus come up in your conversations? I mean, like, ever. Do you talk about Jesus? Do you think about Jesus? Do you seek to evaluate your life by how you are worshiping Jesus in everything that you are about and a part of? This is what it means for Jesus to have the supremacy in all things. 
down to the very details of our lives, our studies, our work, our marriages, our friendships. Jesus is to be supreme. And so if your life isn't magnifying Jesus as supreme and living in light of his supremacy, then there is a great chance, in fact, there is, I would say, a certainty that your life is out of order. And you need to bring it back into submission to the supremacy of Christ. We also then see the, the, the answer to the question, well, then why does Jesus have the right to be supreme? And Paul tells us in verse 19 where he says that, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Listen to what B.B. Warfield said. He was a, a theologian at Princeton University um, a, a while back. He says this, the very deity of God, that which makes God, God in all of its complete, completeness has its permanent home in Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of God. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily in Jesus. Now, here is just a practical encouragement for us in light of the fact that Jesus has all the fullness of God. We need to come to God with all of our emptiness and receive of his fullness. You got that? That is the gospel, by the way. So this is what we need to do initially, and this is what we need to do consistently. I love the hymn by Augustus Toplady that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We have nothing to offer God but our filthy rags of sin. And yet somehow, in his amazing grace and love, God takes our emptiness and our unrighteousness, and he fills us with the righteousness of Christ. This is our greatest need. Not only initially, if you have never been reconciled to God, which we're going there in the text in just a minute, if you've never been reconciled to God, you need this. You need to come to God with your emptiness. You can never perform your way to God. You can never earn your way to God. It's impossible. But you don't have to. Because God has done the work for us. He has sent Jesus to live the perfect life and die a cruel substitutionary death on, for us on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. And so take all of your emptiness on a daily basis and be filled with divine power by coming to Jesus. He will fill you. This is, Peter talks about this. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And Paul will even tell us in later in Colossians that of his fullness we've received it. In an amazing and mysterious way, we receive the fullness of God in Christ. So let's keep being filled by coming to Jesus. And then, and then finally, in this, in this section, Paul will tell us that Jesus reconciles all things through his cross. You say, now, now, what on earth does this mean, Tanner? Verse 20, this is, this is a, a heavy verse, and this is an awesome verse. Because Paul says, look, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, let's just get a little theological here. This is not teaching universalism. The belief that all people will, in the end, be saved and be right with God. This is not what this passage is teaching. Even though it says all things will be uh, reconciled in him through his work on the cross. So, well then what on earth is it talking about? Well, I believe 
for a variety of reasons that Paul is pointing us forward to the ultimate redemption and restoration that is coming in the new heavens and the new earth. You say, well, convince me. Here, let me give you just a few reasons. Number one, we've seen that Paul is hammering here. This is a very high Christology. He is pointing to the transcendence and the, the ultimate sovereignty of Christ. So there is a very transcendent tone here. But then number two, every other time, the, the, the phrase all things is used five times in these six verses. And all four other times, it's talking about all of creation. Things in heaven and on earth. He says it again right here in verse 20. And so what does this mean? Well, then the third argument would then come into play. What does it mean that he's making peace by the blood of his cross? Well, behind this word peace is the Old Testament Hebrew understanding of the word shalom, which means flourishing as God originally intended. So listen to this. Not only are our lives all messed up and broken because we no longer relate rightly to God because of our sin, but also the effects of the fall affected everything in all of creation. Romans 8 tells us that the creation groans, longing for the glory of God to be revealed. And so I believe that verse 20 is pointing us to exactly what Romans 8 is talking about, the glory of God that will be revealed when Jesus unites everything and reconciles everything in himself. And that may mean reconciliation for some, but subjugation or judgment for others. But he will reconcile and make everything right. That's a good way to understand verse 20. He will right every wrong, make everything right according to his goodwill and pleasure. And so... This is what a beautiful picture of Jesus. He reconciles everything through his cross. And so a final encouragement here would be, if if you want to make sense of our world, cling to the cross of Christ. Jesus will right every wrong that we observe under the sun. Finally, not only should we worship Jesus for his supremacy in creation, his supremacy and redemption. But here's, here's the third and final uh, main encouragement for us. Worship Jesus by continuing in the redemption you have received. Uh, read, read verses 21 through 23 with me, if you will. This is what Paul writes, and he gets specific about reconciliation. Verse 20 was reconciliation in the global sense. 21 through 23 is reconciliation in the personal sense. And this is what he says to the Colossians. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so look at what Paul is doing here in these three verses. Number one, he is reminding him, as he loves to do, he is reminding them of what their life looked like before they were reconciled to God. He says that they were not holy, they were separated, alienated from God. Why? Because they were hostile in both thought and action to God. We all, apart from grace, rebel against God in our mind and in our actions. Now, thankfully, and this is the gospel, God does not leave us in that 
spot, but he gives us the opportunity to receive reconciliation. And how does he accomplish this? It is through the body of flesh of Jesus, pointing again to the cross. So when Paul says making peace by the blood of his cross and by his body of flesh in verse 22 and 20, he's saying one and the same thing. He accomplishes this through Jesus and his death. But why did Jesus die? Like what's, the, what's the purpose here? He says, in order that he might present you before him holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So think about this. We, one day, we who are in Christ, will stand before God. This is an amazing thought. We will stand before God one day, and he will count us holy and righteous, set apart for him. But not only that, we will be blameless in his sight. That means all of our stain, all of our sin, even after we become believers in Christ, we still have sin. We still battle our flesh. We still wage war against the flesh. And all of those stains will be spotless. We will be blameless before him. And added to that, we will be above reproach. In other words, no one in all creation can level a charge against those in Christ. But how do we get from here to there? And this is how Paul would tell us in verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed under heaven in all creation, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so this is a great verse on what perseverance looks like. In other words, those in Christ must continue with Christ. And the beautiful thing that we know from reading all of Scripture is that the same grace that gets us into the Christian life will keep us into the Christian life if we truly know Him. You say, well, it looks like in the church that you have a lot of people who profess to know Jesus, but they don't really live for Jesus, and have they fallen from grace? Well, what we would say, we would say with Jesus and John and, and others that the, those who were among us and went out from us proved that they were never really of us. They never really experienced grace. And so Paul gives us a great motivation in verse 23 to continue in the faith that we've received. And so let me, again, give one final encouragement here, point of application. If you want to continue in the faith, fall in love with Jesus. You see, here's the danger of this morning. We've studied, again, one of the, the, the key passages on the person and work of Christ in all of the Bible. And what could happen is this, is that we could fill our little educated, or maybe somewhat uneducated minds about Jesus, and we could really balloon with knowledge of him, and it may not change our life at all. To grow in our knowledge of Christ does not necessarily mean that we will grow in our love for Christ. But yet to know Jesus truly is to truly love him. If we see him for who he is, we will want to know him more, follow him more, love him more, pursue him in his word, go to him in prayer, gather with other people who belong to Jesus, be about Jesus' mission of redemption. In this world, we will want our lives to be all about Jesus. And so while many people want to demote the person and the work of Christ, we want to be a church 
that embraces the full biblical portrait of who Jesus is. He is the God-man. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He is the redeemer and the reconciler of all who have faith and continue in the faith that he has gifted us with. And so you, you, you ask me, Tanner, what do you want your ministry to be about? You're just getting started. You're a rookie pastor. If God gives you a lot of years, what do you want your ministry to be about? Or maybe to put the question another way, what do you want this church to be about? And the answer is simple. We want this church to be all about Jesus. I want my life, my ministry, my marriage, my work, my relationships, my fantasy football even, <laughs> in some strange and mysterious way, it's even possible to be all about Jesus. He is the controlling, defining, driving reason for everything in our lives. And so in conclusion, let me share a little excerpt from a letter of one of my heroes in the faith. This is from a man named Octavius Winslow. He was a 19th century British pastor, and he took a trip when he was about 50 years old and got sick, and so he wasn't even, they weren't even sure that he was going to make it, and he writes this letter back to his congregation, and I think you'll find it really inspiring and encouraging regarding how we live our lives for Jesus and who he is. So follow along with me, if you will. This is what Winslow says. He says this, It has been the distinctive aim and the sincere desire of my ministry amongst you to make known and to endear the Savior to your hearts. From the moment that that believing vision burst upon my view and that spiritual conviction fastened itself upon my heart, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And may I, as from a languid couch, a sick couch, think sick bed, he's sick here, still press the Savior's claims to your regard. Oh, how worthy is he of your most exalted conceptions, of your most implicit confidence, of your most self-denying service, of your most fervent love. When he could give you no more and the fathomless depths of his love and the boundless resources of his grace would not be satisfied by giving you less, he gave you himself. Robed in your nature, laden with your curse, oppressed with your sorrows, wounded for your transgressions, and slain for him your sins, he gave his entire self for you. And let it be remembered that it is a continuous presentation of the hoarded and exhaustless treasures of his love. His redeeming work now finished. He is perpetually engaged in distributing to his church the blessings of that offering made once for all. He constantly asks your faith, woos your affections, invites your grief, and you repair with your daily trials to his sympathy and with your hourly guilt to his blood. Now listen to this. You cannot, in your drafts upon Christ's fullness, be too covetous, nor in your expectations of supply be too extravagant. You may fail, as alas, the most of us do, in making too little of Christ, but you cannot fail 
and making too much of him. Let's be a church that makes much of Jesus Christ and all of his supremacy. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Father, we pray that you would receive glory through your truth falling on our hearts and changing us, transforming our hearts that we might love you and live for you and glorify you with the lives that you have given us. And so, Father, we do that so imperfectly. And that's why we need your help. That's why we need your grace. That's why we need to come to your fullness. So help us to expect much from you, to know that you have an exhaustless treasure of supply to fill us and keep us that we might live our lives for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me do this. Before we respond by singing a couple of songs, I I just want to put a a final kind of personal invitation to everyone in this room. I don't want to assume that everyone walked in here with this reality being true of your life, that you have been reconciled to God through the work of Jesus. And so if you don't know that you have a relationship with God through Christ, if you've never received Jesus as the Lord of your life, if you've never accepted his work for you and kind of ceased of your own strivings to be accepted by God, then today is a day where you can say yes to Jesus. You may be wrestling, man, is God real? Has he revealed himself? Has he made a way for me to relate to him? And all of the answers are right there in the text. And so if you're wrestling with that, you take that connection card and just put a check on the back. I want to explore more about what it means to know Jesus in Christianity. If that's you today, if you are maybe in that place where you've rejected Christ for so many years of your life, but today you're saying, man, this makes sense. I need him. I'm separated from God, but through Christ I can be brought back to God. Then please let us know that there is no more important decision we can make in life than to get connected to God through Jesus Christ. And so if that's you, please let us know in some way, shape, or form. If you're a Christian, you just, you just kind of been blowing it, and you need to come back to Jesus and live for Jesus and glorify Jesus, and you just want some help, some prayer, some counsel, some, some encouragement, let us know. Write that on the back. We'll pray for you. We'll meet with you. We'll encourage you. We need this. This is what the church is all about.